Southern Skies. Online Media. folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 52 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer and with me as always is my good friend and co-host Grant McHeron. G'day mate. Hey mate, how are you going today? Not too bad, we've uh, survived another day on the trains mate, so uh, all is good. Well done and uh, yeah, I've survived another day in the balloons, so another happy day. Yeah, it's been a pretty eventful time in the balloons mate, are you able to elaborate a little bit on uh, recent events? Oh yeah, look, basically... uh a couple of our guys were heading in towards Albert Park, and as you know, a balloon has to go with the winds. And unfortunately, the winds shifted. It was one of those light wind, blue sky days, and uh, headed them straight for the beach in the bay. One of them managed to land quite nicely on the on the beach, and that happens about once or twice a year. A balloon will land on the beach here in Melbourne. And unfortunately, the other guy, his uh, beach landing was very small. The winds were hitting him straight to the narrowest part of the beach in that area, and as a result, he uh, wound up hitting the beach and sliding into the water and then the winds picked up and blew him across the bay so uh, our basic plan is if a balloon heads towards the bay uh, to try and fly to the other side and immediately call the water police so for 15 years we've had this plan in place and we finally actually used it it was pretty cool um, the water police did what they said they'd do we did what we said we'd do and it was pretty full-on all good fun yeah so you I mean in a, in a way really you've, you've given a bit of extra adventure to your passengers and let's face it you you landed them on uh, on uh, St Kilda Beach briefly like you planned to but then uh, you know you also landed them over at Williamstown, so you should have really charged them extra. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, like that'd go down well. <laughs> yeah, no, they had a little bit more adventure than they expected, but uh, no, it all worked out pretty well. And uh, John, the pilot, he's got over 4,000 hours flying balloons. He's done about seven seasons here in Melbourne. He's been flying for about 25 years in over 30 countries, and it's the second time in his life he's ever had his feet wet. Yeah, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, it was all a happy ending in the end. And uh, I know that when you were listening on the media, that uh, despite what some of the commentators uh, were trying to say and the way they were trying to paint it, well, um, you know, the passengers on board were quite complimentary, I thought. So, yeah, look, most people here in Melbourne really enjoy balloons and they love seeing them over the city. Uh, we're pretty well regulated with CASA and uh, the councils and what we can and can't do. But uh, there's a couple of guys in the media on a few radio stations, uh, one in particular who, who really doesn't like balloons. And, you know, we've done what we can with them. But, uh, he doesn't really like hot air balloons at all, and uh, a couple of years ago was almost doing all he could to shut shut the operations down. Uh, but uh, basically, the councils and the state government love us. We're great for tourism, and uh, yeah, we're very safe and fly very well. And I mean, you know, everyone in the aviation world has their incidents. Let's look at the guys who've done wheel up landings, Qantas jets. You know, everyone, V Australia, the whole works. They've all had incidents, and. Um, you know, it's how you handle them and how you get on. And this was just one of those things that can happen in aviation and it was all very safe and handled well, I thought. Yeah, well, anyway, this episode, I guess, wasn't uh, to talk about balloons. I just thought I'd ambush you with that question right at the top, mate. So everybody yeah, knows thanks, that mate. you're a, a balloonatic <laughs> and uh, right into ballooning and uh, some people may not know that you are actually involved with the uh, the company there. So uh, no, no better person to uh, talk about it here on this show than you. <laughs> oh, no, I, I reckon John would be better to get on, but we'll organise that for a later date. Yeah, we'll all drag him kicking and screaming into the studio here one afternoon, mate. <laughs> 
Well, you're talking about adventures and we're talking about tourism and uh, we're talking about great events in aviation. Well, if you tie all those together, Grant, you come up with uh, Avalon 2011, the uh, Australian International Air Show and uh, Aerospace and Defence Exposition. Boy, that's a uh, yeah, that's a well, mouthful, mate. Say that in one breath. Let's just shorten that to Avalon 2011. All right, it's coming up as we record this. It's about a month away, so uh, it's time we started talking about it. That's right. Uh, let's all get everyone excited about the fact that from the 1st to the 6th of March at Avalon Airport down near Geelong, not for bad hours drive out of Melbourne. We're going to have a stack of really cool aircraft and if the rumour mill is correct we're going to have one heck of a crowded airspace down there with everything from B1s and B2s through to the T6 Texan and maybe even an F-22 but you know mate I've worked at enough Avalons both on the tarmac and in media to know that uh, until it's crossed the fence, landed, taxied, parked, tied down and the crew have gotten out it's not really coming. Yeah, well, we might have a bit of a talk on the other side of our of our feature interview here about uh, some of the some of the aircraft that we know are going to be here. That's uh, the stuff that's up on the website as we record this. But uh, Grant, we're going to go back a little bit in time and uh, in a couple of ways. First off, uh, to an interview we recorded way back in uh, August last year, and uh, where we spoke to the boss of uh, the air show. Now, uh, the gentleman in question is uh, Ian Honnery. Uh, Ian is an extremely busy man, and uh, he was very generous to give us what we thought would be about a forty minute interview. And actually, uh, as you'll see in this one, it actually turned out to be just. Over an hour, so we're very grateful for Ian's time. We did have some issues with the sound quality, which is why it's taken us a while to get this one out, and we'll talk about that a bit uh, on the other side of the interview. But uh, Grant, Ian uh, uh, spoke to us here about the history of the air show, how it all came about, and uh, how it gets run these days, and uh, and everything in between. It was a really interesting interview. Indeed, mate, it was a great chat and uh, quite fun to hear some of the inside stories about the Russians turning up and uh, things like that. I'd heard some of them while I was uh, working the tarmac, but it's great to get Ian's perspective on them as well. Yeah, now as I said, Dave. Uh, may have to turn your speakers up a little bit, folks, because the sound quality is uh, not what you're used to out of uh, playing crazy down under, but uh, that's not Ian's fault. That's our fault for not having our recording equipment set up properly. So, uh, you know, you live and you learn. But, uh, Grant, you know that doesn't detract from the uh, from the wonderful discussion and the quality of the content. So here we are with the Chief Executive Officer of Air Shows Down Under, Mr Ian Honnery. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're sitting here with Ian Honoring, who is the man behind the Avalon Air Show. Ian, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks, Grant. It's good to have you both with us. Now, uh, what we're going to approach uh, discussing this chat is uh, the history of the show. You are the man behind the uh, the Avalon Air Show. You've brought the whole air show together from the start. So we wanted to have a chat with you about uh, where it came from. Well, I guess I'm the, I have the privilege of being the leader of the team that puts the show on at Avalon every two years. And it really is an interesting history, and I'm, I do say so myself on behalf of the team, very proud of it, because um, uh, it's really an, a story of turning an acorn into an oak tree. I can't really think of uh, an aeronautical uh, term <laughs> which would reflect that, but I think that that's a proper description. The show has its genesis back at Schofields Aerodrome okay. in the northwestern suburbs of Sydney in 1976. A group of us uh, at the Schofields Aero Club were sitting around one Sunday afternoon, chewing the fat after, as you do after you've had a, been at a flying competition, and trying to explain why you're a better pilot uh, than everybody <laughs> else in the world, and generally uh, uh, enjoying a few beers as you were able to do. Um, on a Sunday afternoon at a barbecue before, before breathalysers were at university. <laughs> and um, engaged in general hangar talk. And uh, the fledgling Schofields Aero Club needed aircraft. It didn't have any aircraft of its own. And we were thinking about how we might be able to raise some money in order to uh, buy an aircraft. We were borrowing other people's aeroplanes. And uh, somebody... Uh, 
who shall be nameless, um, but whom you're looking at probably, um, <laughs> uh, came up with a bright spark idea of why don't we have an air show in order to raise a few bob uh, to put this a down payment on a little aeroplane. And the other guys at that stage, having settled into a solid afternoon and early evening of drinking, uh, <laughs> were in the mood to agree with any stupid idea and we all said, yeah, what a great idea. <laughs> um, so uh, within a short period of time, uh, we had a little committee of three uh, and um, uh, the Schofields Flying Club then had a membership of about 30 people and we decided to uh, put on an air show. And that air show was put on in September 1976. As we got into the process of uh, organising this air show, and remember, we're all volunteers, we're all just aviation enthusiasts, yep. all private aviators, um, all uh, enthusiastic members of the Aero Club, um, we, start, we started to realise that this was getting um, more and more complicated and more and more expensive. And uh, it became somewhat of a, a shock to us to realize that we'd invested $10,000 in this thing and we didn't have $10,000 to invest. Um, so uh, we had to support it with our own funding. But anyhow, the Aero Club went ahead, put on the air show, and it was very successful on a Sunday afternoon uh, at Schofield's Aerodrome. It went for an hour and a half, or the flying display went for an hour and a half. Uh, the star attraction, I remember it quite distinctly, was um, Colpe's Mustang. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but that was, that was in, in my view, one of the star attractions. But then we had a fair bit of Air Force participation as well. Mm -hmm. And we even had the, uh, the Navy's fleet air arm participate with the A4s, uh, which is something that you don't see anymore. No, that's very well done. And um, we, uh, we attracted 10,000 people, which astonished us. Yep. We made $10,000 and we were immediately suckered in <laughs> like the first time gambler who goes to a poker machine and puts in uh, 20 cents and suddenly hits the jackpot. Yep. They then think that they're always going to be able to do that afterwards. <laughs> no. Anyhow, so it was a great show and people from uh, industry, uh, the general aviation industry, thought it was great. It, there hadn't been an air show of this nature in the Sydney region for some time and they said well you guys have done a fantastic job why don't you do it again now with that ten thousand dollars the Schofields Flying Club was able to uh, in actual fact put down uh, a down payment on two aircraft and it then went to, on to bigger and better things but it developed this reputation um, of being able to organize really good air shows we did another one in um, 1977 and then more uh, almost every year and then we when we became biennial yep. because it started to get bigger and bigger yep. and harder and harder and uh, and interestingly as as the shows got bigger and bigger at Schofields they cost more and more money they attracted more and more people uh, but they um, they generated less and less revenue yep. so it was sort of law of diminishing returns <laughs> okay so in 1981 we ran a very, very successful show at Schofields, which celebrated the RAAF's 60th anniversary. And I think that that gave us a reputation with the Air Force, uh, which lasted for a long time. Many of us uh, in the uh, Aero Club uh, had uh, a pretty strong Air Force connection. For example, I'd been in the Air Force Reserve. Uh, a number of our um, instructors had been either ex-Air Force 
Um, indeed, we had an honorary instructor at that time, Ray Fennell, uh, who went on to become chief of the Air Force. Okay. So we, so, so we, we, we had a lot of close connections, and RAF Richmond is only a hop, step, and a jump yep. away. And we, indeed, we were in the Air, in the Air Force uh, airspace, okay. um, military airspace at uh, Schofields, and uh, we were on um, part of the old um, HMAS Marimba um, airport. Okay. Um, HMAS Marimba would be the uh, naval base, which had, uh, uh, which was still um, in those days training um, aeronautical apprentices uh, for the navy. Anyhow, um, that connection led to a recommendation being made to the fledgling Australian Bicentennial Authority that if there were to be an air tattoo as part of the bicentennial celebrations in 1988, the organisation that would be best uh, positioned and experienced to run it was this bunch of enthusiasts that had demonstrated uh, a great deal of professionalism, everyone was saying, uh, in running all of these air shows uh, at Schofields. And indeed, it was the Air Force's recommendation, would you believe, to the Bicentennial Authority that we be approached. Anyhow, uh, the Schofields Flying Club agreed at the invitation of the Bicentennial Authority to put together proposals for the staging of what was initially considered to be an air tattoo at Richmond uh, in 1988. We persuaded the Bicentennial Authority that the concept needed to be expanded into a complete air show. And we felt that this was an opportunity for Australia to present to the world a showcase of its capabilities and history, not only in aviation, but also in aerospace as well. Yeah. So um, it was ultimately agreed that it would be held at Richmond uh, with the support of the RAAF, and a partnership was developed between the Royal Australian Air Force and the Australian Bicentennial Airshow Organising Committee, which was a division of Schofield's Flight Club. Right. And together, uh, we put on the Australian Bicentennial Airshow at Richmond. Now, that airshow at Richmond was really the forerunner of what you see here at Avalon. Okay. The model is almost exactly the same. There were a number of trade days. Aerospace and defence companies from around the world were invited to participate. Air forces from around the world were invited to participate in the flying displays. And uh, at Richmond, uh, there were two public days, and if my memory serves me correctly, I think three trade days. Yeah. So it was very much the same sort of model as had been established at Farnborough and a number of other international shows. And we took the view that what we would do is to present a multifaceted aeronautical event which would capture the best features of Farnborough, the International Air Tattoo in the United Kingdom, and Oshkosh in the <laughs> United States. Okay. Um, and we felt that using the Schofield's general aviation tradition and with the support of the Air Force at a facility such as RAF Richmond, we could do that. Now, we, we succeeded in doing that. And as you're probably aware, um, I don't know whether either of you guys were there, but it was an outstanding event. Uh, there were about 240,000 people came to it. It was um, voted by Flight International as being the best air show of the year wow. in the world. Uh, and it received accolades and awards internationally. That's great. I think um, Flight International described it as being um, the show where the dreary business of aerospace uh, is is overcome by the excitement 
on fire, something like that. Some <laughs> words like I can't quite remember the exact words that they used, but it was a re- it was a great compliment. And what happened was that that show, uh, which was effectively run by Schofield's Flying Club, a bunch of volunteers, yep. and we had worked on it. All of us were volunteers. I was in effect chief executive, and I worked, and so did others, uh, for five years on it. We had a small administrative support staff, but all of the executive managers were, were volunteers. And we put to bear our skills in engineering or commerce or business or industry or the professions. And um, we utilized that to put on this um, significant uh, enterprise. It made money. And with that money, the Schofields Flying Club altruistically decided, even though it had taken the complete entrepreneurial risk and was entitled to all of the funds, it decided that it would endow the large part of these funds on some form of permanent foundation. And in conjunction with uh, Ray Fennell, who was then Chief of Air Force, we made a decision to establish a foundation. And the foundation was called the Aerospace Foundation of Australia. And its mission was to promote aviation and Australian uh, Australia's aerospace industry capabilities and technology. This foundation had several hundred thousand dollars in the kitty. And the, a decision then had to be made as to what we would do with this foundation. And after a period of consideration, Ray Fennell and I decided that we would recommend to the foundation that it do what its members and its supporters do best. <laughs> and that was to run air shows. Yep. And that we would use uh, the, the Australian Bicentennial Air Show in 1988 as a model for us, the sort of foundation, the genesis of um, air shows on a regular basis in Australia and on a larger scale like the Bicentennial Air Show and this would be a natural development from the Schofields days through the Bicentennial Air Show. And so the first air show we ran as a foundation uh, was in two, it was in 1991, again at Richmond because we were familiar with the site and again with support from the Air Force and it celebrated the RAAF's 70th anniversary. Yep. And that was a pretty successful show. It wasn't a trade show, it was a broadly a public show, it, although it had some trade exhibitors at it, that, that aspect was fairly limited. It again was uh, pretty successful. And once again, was largely run by volunteers with a very small uh, administrative staff. And the same team that had been with us during the during the Schofields years as volunteers managing the Schofield shows through the Bicentennial Air Show, managing that, were now with us supporting the foundation yeah. in its first show, which was the uh, RAAF 70th Anniversary Air Show, which they were really addicted yeah. to it. They were all, were all addicted to it. I mean, what, you, you know, you you understand, guys, that once you once you've had an injection of Avgas into your veins, you're done. Yeah. You start growing propellers out of your head, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, so that was some, that was a successful event. Now, during the course of the period leading up to that event, uh, we were approached by the Victorian government to look at the possibility of staging a major aviation event in Victoria. Okay. They'd seen what we had done at the Bicentennial Air Show, obviously. They saw what we were doing at uh, for the RAF 70th. And you must remember that Victoria had, just prior to that, made an unsuccessful bid for the Commonwealth Games. And uh, they were keen uh, to attract a major event to the state. Yeah. And it was just the beginning of Victoria's intense interest 
in major events. And since then, of course, they've gone on to the Air Show and the Grand Prix and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. Uh, and they've become the sort of major event capital of Australia in many respects. And the Air Show was part of that development. What uh, wasn't generally known was that we were also thinking at the time about what we would do post the RAF's 70th anniversary air show at Richmond in 1991. And um, we were looking at venues. We couldn't hold it again at Richmond. The urban sprawl was beginning to surround Richmond um, and it would have been too much to, to hold further shows at Richmond so soon after the Bicentennial air show and then the RAF's 70th anniversary air show. So we were looking at alternative venues. And one of the alternative venues that we had in mind, amongst others, uh, was Avalon, which at the time was uh, run by uh, ASTA, Aerospace Technologies Australia, which was the old government aircraft factory. And the airfield was just barren. I mean, it was a, was literally a sheep paddock or really a, a rabbit <laughs> warren um, because there was just, you know, stacks of wild rabbits everywhere with a wonderful 10,000-foot runway, parallel taxiway, a number of hangars, which were effectively a, a factory complex at the northern end of it, where they used to fabricate uh, aircraft, including mm-hmm. the Mirage, yep. um, and, um, and nothing much else. I mean, there were no airline activities here at that right. stage. Um, the place was not being used other than uh, for occasional bit of test flying. So uh, the Victorian government said, well, what will it take you to bring your event to Victoria? And we said, well, it's, that's obvious. It's got a dollar sign in front of it. Uh, <laughs> and it will be necessary to, to relocate a lot of facilities and people uh, to Victoria because we developed quite an organisation yeah. at that stage, although basically volunteers. We ran the first air show here at Avalon in October was or was it November? I can't remember that such a long time ago in um, 1992. And at that stage, what we didn't realise was that the weather conditions could be extraordinarily variable. (laughs) Bloody unpredictable, as a matter of fact. Um, And we had a flood here at Avalon. There was a a record period of rain leading up to the event. The whole airfield at one stage was underwater. Oh, wow. Um, All of our car parking areas were just... A wash. Oh, yeah. uh, we had to completely rearrange in the last week or two before the show all of the ground area. We had this where aircraft were located, where um, static displays were going to be, where um, grandstands were going to be, where chalets were going to be located, where all the temporary buildings and where the expo facility was. All had to be rearranged, and it was an absolute. Uh, it was a. It was a period of, of um, just great stress and challenge oh, yeah. on all of us. But the team came through it. Uh, very, very well, and we did that, and we ran the show. As a matter of fact, it's an interesting little story. There are a couple of very interesting aviation stories about this, out of this and on. The first story is that it was so wet that we had to bring in as much um, tan bark as we can, you know, the sort yeah, yeah. of bits of wood chips that wood chip, yeah. stick down in your garden or whatever. And we had to make walking tracks for people and, and, and also tracks that vehicles could, uh, could, could, could go over. So uh, we cleaned out the complete supply of these wood chips, tan bark in Victoria and southern New South Wales <laughs> and, uh, within, uh, in, and in South Australia as far as I'm aware of as well. So, I mean, we just had to get every bit we possibly could. We laid it down. We were actually losing cars in the car park during the event. They were getting bogged. Then we're putting trucks in to pull them out and the trucks were getting bogged. Oh then God. we're putting tractors in to pull the trucks out. So it was yeah. really was full on. <laughs> Now, that show had a couple of uh, interesting features. The Russians participated significantly. We had been wooing the Russians 
for some time. They first came to the Bicentennial Air Show at Richmond. And it was really interesting because in those days, our Defence Force was very, very sensitive to the security issues that they perceived as being applicable to the Russians. And there are stories I'd like to tell you about there, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Quite interesting. But then uh, we developed the contacts. We pursued them around the world at Farnborough and the Paris Air Show and so on. And we drank vodka with them and we sat in smoke-filled rooms uh, with them and with translators uh, when the people that we were talking to from the various companies like Sukhoi and Anatov and so on all spoke perfect English, but they didn't speak to us in English. We, we had to use translators. Um, anyhow, we got them uh, out to, uh, to Avalon. For the inaugural show, didn't they bring? They brought. They bought the Internop one two four, and they bought an IL ninety six and a few other uh, aircraft, and I think a, uh, a couple of helicopters as well, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah, I remember a couple of the guys on ground telling me the story of marshalling the one two four in the night because it arrived in the evening or something like that. Oh, that's correct, in the dead of night, probably. Yeah. Um, and and one of the things about it was that um, there'd always been discussions <laughs> with the Russians about who would pay. And we made it perfectly clear to them that if they wanted to come to our air show, they had to meet their own costs. There would be some things that we would assist them with. For example, we would provide accommodation for their air crews. We would assist them perhaps with a couple, with a, with a couple of hire cars for air crews. We would help feed them, etc., uh, in our facilities, our air shows down under club and, and so on at the, at the show. And we would, we would provide that sort of support facility, but there would be no fee. And... Most importantly, we would not pay for fuel. <laughs> All right. They had to pay for fuel. Well, the Antonov arrived, and soon after it arrived, it needed to be refueled. And it uh, takes a lot of fuel. Oh, yeah. And Mobil were our official fuel supplier at the time, and the local Mobil manager was responsible for this. And we had said to him that we are not accepting responsibility for the meeting the cost of putting yeah. the fuel in these aircraft. So he came to us and said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, look, we'll have to talk to the Russians about this. And we spoke to the Russians, and after a lot of interpret interpreters, translations, and so on, it was made very clear to them we were not going to put fuel in the aircraft, and they made it very clear that they were not going to fly. And we said, well, the aeroplane is just going to stay there. Yeah. Um, anyhow, after a period of prolonged standoff, a lot of swearing in good old Deacon Aussie language, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of swearing in good <laughs> Russian as well, um, they gave in, and the colonel who was in charge of the outfit barked some orders, and somebody came back with a briefcase. Not a briefcase, I'm sorry, a suitcase. <laughs> and in the suitcase were American dollars. It was chock-a-block full of American dollars. And um, you know, I don't know whether they were real or counterfeit. <laughs> I've got no idea. I don't know whether the origin was the U.S. Treasury Department or whether it was uh, <laughs> KGB. I have no idea. I don't care. Anyhow, the look on the face of the mobile manager when he saw that he was going to be paid for an Antonov tank full of um, fuel in in cash, cash. in American dollars, uh, was, was something oh, to be priceless. I mean, it was priceless. <laughs> uh, anyhow, he took the dollars and he obviously, um, he, uh, obviously they were, they were genuine, as far as I'm aware, uh, and the aeroplane got filled. And then there was an argument about whether they would fly. Still, there was another no. argument about whether they would fly. You've got to understand that they came out and they were very entrepreneurial. Yes. They came out with, with cargoes and things that they wanted to sell. Yep. And they would try to sell them from the back of their aircraft 
or whatever. Everybody. And the aeroplane was full of people, all little would-be entrepreneurs. Yep. Uh, and this is back before the sort of economic liberalisation of, uh, of Russia. Anyhow, um, they flew, and they flew remarkably well, and I think very spectacularly, very close to the ground. Yeah. Um, and there were there were times when I really didn't want to look. It was it was it was the displays were exciting. We had a great air show, despite the fact that people had paid a lot of money to for corporate boxes and other facilities, and they had to walk through um, <laughs> water and mud in order to get to grandstands and corporate boxes and chalets and so on. We got through the show. During the course of that show, though, we did have a major problem because not only did we have to cope with the weather and rearrange all the facilities on the ground, as I explained, and that was challenging enough. But on the Saturday of the show, there was a four or five car collision on the lead-in road into Avalon off the freeway. And it was just one of those simple head-to-tail collisions, you know, four or five cars in a line of traffic, as you would expect, sudden stop and bang, bang, bang. But Constable Bloggs, who went out to have a look at it, decided that he would play it by the book. He left all the cars in position uh, and he took the details. As a result of that, there was a domino effect delay and we ended up with a traffic jam that extended right back to the Westgate Bridge. Uh, And what that revealed was that this inaugural show here at Avalon was very going to be very, very popular and there was a lot of people on the way to it. A lot of people got here, but a lot of people, I think, didn't as well. (laughs) That traffic issue subsequently resulted in a change of the procedures which the police and the authorities used and they would now under, uh, they, they made a decision that if that sort of thing happened in the future, they would just get the cars off the road, they'd worry about the details, yeah. paperwork later on and they get the traffic moving, you wouldn't even notice that there'd been a delay. But it was a learning curve. Oh, yeah. I mean, all the traffic authorities and other police and agencies who were involved with the show at that time were involved for the first time. So we were all learning it was a new venue. That, however, did have an impact on us. And uh, it, it, it meant that it took a couple of shows after that for us to uh, recover uh, from the reputation that we've developed. Now, you can come to the Avalon Air Show, as you know, uh, and uh, it doesn't take that long to get in. It takes a fair while to get out of the car parks at the end of the day. Yep. But we've just had some people come back from um, uh, overseas at other shows. And I'll tell you, they will never listen to anybody who wants to complain about traffic uh, <laughs> at Avalon. Just go to Washkosh, just go to the IAT in the United Kingdom or Farnborough. Uh, the traffic issues at Avalon are minuscule by comparison. Oh, yeah. They run great public transport here too, don't they, And They run uh, the V-Line train services not far away and they run yeah. the shuttles and it's, it's a good alternative for people. It is. Um, that doesn't take up a, a, a large proportion of the numbers of people attending the show. No, I mean, on a good cars. day, we might get 80,000, 85,000 people here, yeah. uh, but they can only accommodate about 10,000 people on the train. So it, it is always going to be an event to which people go by car primarily. Especially the, I know the Friday night where you do the night sh- night air show on the Fridays. Once that's over, there's just a stream of people coming out. And, oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. That's right. And of course, the following air show uh, in, two th- in 1995 uh, was the first in which we introduced a night show. Okay. And that, you might remember, that was the show where we had the issue 27. Now, that was a really important show because... What that did was it put the Americans in a situation where they felt that they ought to be participating in the show in a big way. And uh, the then Commander-in-Chief of Pacific Command was in our chalet uh, at Avalon watching the show. Look, he, he was a, 
was a, a Navy fighter pilot himself by way of background, and he looked at the um, uh, the SU-27 doing its uh, display, and he said, we can do every bit as good as that. And as a result, uh, we developed a very, very strong relationship with the US military, and that resulted in a very large contingent of US military aircraft with all of our shows subsequently. Yep. And the show has gone on to get uh, bigger and more comprehensive, uh, as you're aware. So that's a, that's a potted history of the early days <laughs> uh, of the uh, Avalon Air Show. Uh, and, and I guess it's I guess it's relevant to this conversation because you'd be interested to learn that the next show here at Avalon in March will be the tenth in the series. So it's really a, an occasion for us. Oh yeah, ten shows at Avalon, and also we'll celebrate the RAAF's ninetieth uh, anniversary, and we're using it to commemorate a hundred years of passenger flight in Australia. So uh, it's quite a significant show, that is and it. we think it's. Uh, yeah, no, that's a lot of, that's three major events, uh, anniversaries all in the one. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Looking for a studio to record your next project? From recording and song production to music videos, disc duplication and DVD presentation kits designed to get you noticed. Audiovisual Media is more than just a recording studio. It's a complete solution for musicians with recording and music video packages available. Record your next project at Audiovisual Media and score free studio time. To find out how, visit our website at www.audiovisualmedia.com.au or call us on 0407091. I'm Lieutenant Mike Elderfield and I'm a Blackhawk pilot. Pilots in the Army's aviation cadetships start with leadership training. I did uh, 18 months of officer training at the Royal Military College in Duntree. And you do everything from tactics to military history. And his flying training? From there, pilot training at Tamworth and Oakey. Just how good is Mike's job? Love flying. You can think of any adventure sport you might do. Flying a Blackhawk helicopter's got to beat it. If you want to make a difference, challenge yourself with an Army pilot aviation cadetship. We're recruiting now. Call 131901 or visit defencejobs.gov.au. Hi there, I'm James Williams, inviting you to listen to Lifestyle Jazz. Lifestyle Jazz is a new contemporary, modern, and smooth jazz show on the Lifestyle Pod Network. It's hosted by me, James Williams, and each show you can enjoy a half hour of some of the best jazz around. So let me invite you now to visit us on our website where you can subscribe to the podcast, look at who we're playing, and listen to a few shows. I look forward to seeing you soon at lifestylejazz.com. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. You're talking there about the US military and, uh, of course, the Australian military and uh, some of our other military partners around the world. What benefit do they perceive from being in an air show like this in this sort of remote part of the world? I mean, the US military, obviously, they're allies of ours. What do they see as an advantage for them being here? Just a projection of force, uh, possible sales of their aircraft? How do they view that? Well, the US in particular has a number of objectives in participating in the show. I would suspect that their greatest objective is to reinforce the intimacy of the strategic and political and diplomatic relationship between Australia and the United States. The second uh, is to be seen to be supporting its military partner in this part of the world, especially the Royal Australian Air Force. There is a very close relationship between our Air Force and the United States Air Force. 
And thirdly, obviously, for the US aerospace and defense industry, it's important that it uses an event such as this to foster and develop its contacts in the Australian Department of Defense and with Australian industry. So it does have a number of reasons. There are a number of reasons why uh, the US strongly supports the event, and there's some of them. I think I should explain at this stage that the show at Avalon is very much a multifaceted event. There are really several aspects to it. It is as if it's several air shows, or several shows, or events, major events, put into one. Obviously, there is a major international aviation public entertainment spectacular. That's the air show. There's also a major, well-recognised, highly positioned international aerospace and defence industry trade exhibition. Thirdly, there are, is a congress of aerospace and defence technology and industry conferences and seminars. And finally, last but by no means least in my book, it is a unique convention of aviation enthusiasts. Now, people participate in an event like this for a whole bunch of reasons. And one of the challenges for somebody like me is to try to make sure that they will achieve out of it what they would like to get out of it. We have a plethora of, of stakeholders and they all have a variety of interests and agendas and objectives. Now, when you look at the show in next year, next March, the primary theme of that show is obviously going to be the celebration of the 90th anniversary of the RWF. And what's happened over the years is that a partnership has really developed between us, a not-for-profit organisation, the Air Shows Down Under team, if you like, and the Royal Australian Air Force to jointly put on this event because it really has become the centrepiece promotional activity for our Air Force every two years. It's the centrepiece promotional activity for the Australian aerospace industry. It is the major aviation event in Australia um, every two years. And together, we've been able to put on a multifaceted event which has really achieved international standing. One of the challenges is, for us, that, as I said, people come to the show for a whole bunch of different reasons. Some people come because they love warbirds. Some people come because they love military aircraft, current military aircraft, combat jets. Some people come simply because they love the Connie and they you know, expect to see it here regularly, uh, and it's always one of the features of the show. Others come because they just uh, they like the technology that's on display. Others come because they're interested in air support aircraft. So we try to, we try to, as much as we possibly can, satisfy everybody's interests. It's not always possible to completely satisfy everybody's interests. (laughs) And we try very, very hard. But what a lot of people don't realise, and you've got to remember, I come to this from a a background as an aviation enthusiast, a private pilot, uh, somebody who was actively involved in the aero club movement. We try to work on the philosophy that aviation is a spectrum, but it is a single continuum from the heavy, high-technology end through to the light, recreational sport end. Somewhere in that spectrum are warbirds, business aviation, corporate aviation, airlines, and, of course, at one end of the spectrum is the military and combat jets and so on. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, there are uh, recreational aircraft and ultralights and air sport and so on. And... What we try to do 
is to recognize that the average member of the public, not the aviation enthusiasts like us, not the propeller heads like we are, <laughs> um, is attracted to the show primarily because of the uh, boom and zoom yep. of the military aircraft. And by their attraction to the show and by the participation of the Australian and international aerospace and defence industries, we're able to put on this event and fund it. And as a result of that, we're able to provide an opportunity for a whole range of aviation from the big end to the little end, from the most sophisticated to the most simple, and to all be on display at Avalon and to demonstrate to the punters that we're all part of this one aviation continuum. Yeah. And now that's probably a little bit of a statement of personal philosophy, but nevertheless, that's the, the, the philosophy which governs the way in which we approach it. Now that means, of course, that we can't, we don't necessarily have all of the best warbirds in Australia on display at one time, or all of the best, or the best variety of antique aircraft on display yep. at one time. Um, what we've got to do is we've got to put together something which satisfies a whole variety of people's interests. And I think we do that pretty well, but sometimes you know, somebody will go away and say, well, why wasn't uh, the Tamora Spitfire there at, yeah. uh, at Avalon on this occasion? Well, you just can't satisfy everybody's yeah. requirements all the time. Next uh, show, I think, though, um, will come pretty close to it. Okay. Because... Um, it's, as I said, it's a very special show. Yeah. And I'm expecting that there will be not just a comprehensive participation from the Australian Defence Force, but we're going to have, I believe, uh, as a result of the invitations being extended by our Chief of Air Force around the world, mm -hmm. a very, very extensive list of international aircraft on display as well oh, from the Air Forces from all over the place. And we're going, going out of our way to make sure that we have a good variety of warbirds that comprehensively depicts the history of the Air Force. You're talking about the recreational um, aviation sector, and we've noticed that that's becoming a far more predominant uh, part of the industry. Is there a big representation this year from that sector? And it's, so is, is, have you noticed it getting bigger over the years? Yes, one of one of the that's that's true. And we, we we have a very very close association with the um, recreational aviation people here in uh, in Australia as we do with all of the general aviation organisations and air sport organisations. I believe that recreational aviation is not just a growing area, but is, it is really the future of private flying. I was speaking uh, in Canberra with Steve Tizard uh, recently, who's the newly appointed yes. chief executive of RAOS, and um, Steve and I were talking about uh, the sort of aircraft that are available. I mean, they are, they are real aeroplanes. Oh, yeah. You can you can elect to register them as a VH aeroplanes, yep. or will you leave them on in the recreational yep. uh, category? I was um, uh, at Sydney University uh, the day before last uh, at the Aeronautical Engineering um, Department, uh, talking to some guys there, and uh, their students uh, actually put together uh, Jabiru aircraft okay. as part of their um, studies yep. program, and um, I was having a look for the first time actually, a Jabiru aircraft partially in the course of construction. And look, I have no doubt that the future of light aircraft training and the future of recreational and sport flying rests with the recreational aircraft. Now we therefore want to make the public aware yep. of that. And we are going to, uh, at the next show, support the recreational 
Aviation uh, RAOS yeah. uh, and a number of the other uh, air sport organisations in Australia to put together a comprehensive showcase uh, of uh, recreational aviation, antique aviation, um, air sport as well. Yeah. Now I think it's important that we do that because one of the things that concerns me as an aviation enthusiast and somebody now who's been deeply involved with Australia's aerospace and aviation industry over a long period of time is that we need to encourage young people to get interested in aviation and careers in aviation. Definitely. I mean, I, I think it's trite to say, it's not, I think we all know that one of the big problems that general aviation in particular faces is that the average age of lameness is now in the late 50s. Yep. Mm. Now that means that all the buggers will either will be still bloody uh, doing their uh, <laughs> doing maintenance uh, on aircraft uh, while they're going home to their nursing homes. Right? <laughs> now, they'll be yep. walking around airplanes with a bloody Zimmer <laughs> frame, right? Um, uh, I mean, this is a real problem. Yeah. We've got an aging aircraft problem. Yep. The only way we'll overcome the aging aircraft problem is through recreational aviation yep. because have a look at the price of factory built general aviation aircraft nowadays. It's out of my reach. I don't know about yours, no, but I mean, it's very, very expensive. And um, I think we've got to do two things. We've got to make the general public aware of the importance of recreational and private aviation, general aviation. I think we've also got to excite enthusiasm amongst young people in not just flying, you know, that's, a, that's the recreational activity, if you like, but in getting interested in the technology yeah. and in the engineering. Yeah. And the the wide variety of careers that are associated with aviation, aerospace and defence. And one of the, if you'll pardon me for just putting this plug in, one of the big innovations that we've initiated at Avalon is a huge careers and skills oh, promotion excellent. program. At the last air show at Avalon in um, 2009, we had a major careers and skills promotion program. And on one of the days, we had 700 or so students, yeah. secondary students, participate in a an organised program uh, to make them aware of the opportunities that there are in aviation and the training pathways that can lead to those opportunities. Uh, it was a great success. We're doing it again uh, at the next show. It'll be even bigger. Uh, and we see that as a as a really important part of our mission and one of the great outcomes that can, oh, yeah. can be um, a result of the events such as Avalon. So recreational aviation, uh, general aviation are really important to us and encouraging young people to be involved in aviation as well. And just talking about young people, and um, we talk about the civilian side of things, but I guess the uh, military would view the air show as a great recruiting mechanism. Yes, it is. Yep. It is. Increasingly, the level of participation with not only aircraft displays, but ground displays by the Australian Defence Force generally, yep. and the Air Force in particular, uh, has become more comprehensive. At the last air show at, at Avalon, there was a very, very extensive display uh, put on by the Defence Force. There, you know, there were vehicles, there were, um, there were tanks, yeah. and of course there was an example of every type of aircraft that's flown in the Australian Defence Force Inventory, Army, yeah. Navy and Air Force. And Avalon has become an extremely important recruiting tool for them. And it really is the centrepiece for military aviation in Australia. Um, and I would think that they probably get a lot more interest from young people uh, in pursuing potential careers in the military as a result of an event such as Avalon than they would out of a plethora of, of, of other promotional activities that they might engage in. Yeah. Certainly a really important part of their uh, recruiting mix, there's no doubt about that.
Now, on the actual running of the air show, as you mentioned, when you first came here, Avalon was basically just being used for test flying and so on with the government aircraft factories and so on. Mm-hmm. These days, it's grown quite a bit. And we now have Jetstar doing regular flights. Mm-hmm. And I remember the last couple of air shows, it's always been fun juggling Jetstar. Mm-hmm. And there's now a chance that Tiger's going to be flying out of here. What's it like trying to put together an air show when you've got commercial operations going on in the middle of, of all the demos? Challenging. <laughs> um, Tiger have announced that they will be commencing operations at Avalon in November of this year. So there will be a few Tiger flights out of Avalon uh, each day during the airshow period uh, in March. The level of Tiger and Jetstar flights into or out of Avalon each day is still not prohibitive. And we are currently in the process of um, some fairly detailed discussions operationally with uh, Avalon Airport, which is owned by Linfox. Yep and um, also with the operational people from both Jetstar and uh, Tiger uh, to work out the way in which we're going to be able to accommodate both our requirements for the flying displays and also their requirements for their, uh, their services. There will be challenges for us, but we've effectively been able to do that now since Jetstar commenced operations here in 2005. And we've been able to do it in a way up until now, which has accommodated their scheduled services. It hasn't disrupted our flying display program very much at all. We've been able to get in all the flying displays that we've wanted to get in. And sure, it has put a lot of pressure on our um, ringmaster and the flying (laughs) display operations team, but we've been able to achieve it. Now, we believe we're going to be able to continue to do that. The thing about airline movements at an airshow like Avalon where the public is so close to the runway, is that even an aircraft which is probably a bit ho-hum for you and me, like a, an A320 or something that land or something like that landing in front of the crowd, it's pretty exciting for the average general member of the public yep. because they're up close and personal and they can see it happening. It's an angle sure. that they normally It's get. an angle that they don't normally get. And effectively, we incorporate them into the flying yep. display program. The big problem for us is really the way in which we design the choreography or theming of the flying display program. So if we have to uh, operate around scheduled services, it may mean that we may have to adjust the way in which we choreograph the display. So if we're doing something, for example, such as the history of the art of layout, rather than being able to put on a display segment which might run for an hour and it might even an hour and a half, and it might start with the very beginning in 1921 and take it right through to um, you know, 2011 and, and depict uh, with a variety of aircraft the history of the development of the RAAF. And you'd like to be able to do that in an uninterrupted fashion. <laughs> right? So we may not be able to do that. We may have to have uh, Act 1 and then a break, and then Act 2 yep. and a break, and then Act 3. We may have to do that. But even if we do have to have some degree of interruption to the continuity of the flying display program. It's worth remembering that Avalon is realistically the only suitable airport in Australia where we could conduct a major international show of this significance. And at least we're able to present several hours of flying displays over the period of a day even though there might be some interruptions. Now, the interruptions can work in some people's favour. I've actually heard it said that people think there's too much flying display goes on at Avalon (laughs) uh, and they don't get enough time to go away and have a look at other displays on the ground or go away and have something to eat or whatever, have a break. 
Uh, they're trying um, to do it in one day. That's that's, that's the thing. <laughs> well, it really is hard to, yeah. to get the full value out of an event like Avalon in one day. You really need to come for a couple of days. But a lot of people only only have the one day available. So um, I think what's going to happen is that um, we will be able to work through on a show by show basis our program with the operators here at, uh, at Avalon, and we'll be able to achieve. I'm pretty confident a program which will enable us to present um, our flying displays. Uh, in a pretty attractive fashion. Now, they, we may find that the flying display program, when it's finalised for Avalon 2011, might start half an hour earlier. It might finish half an hour later than usual in order to be able to accommodate the extra airline yep. movements. But I think for most of us, uh, that's not that's a small price to pay. Just buy it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can yeah. put up with it. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to talk about just while we're here? Well, I'd just like to say something about our volunteers. I think that it's extremely important to realise that air shows are about people as much as they're about planes. They're about people because they are there to showcase planes for people to see. Without the people who come to the air show as visitors, as attendees, as international delegations, as trade visitors, as exhibitors and so on, the show wouldn't go on. Without the participants who pilot the planes, provide the planes, provide the displays, the exhibitors, there would be no show. And without the people who actually put the show on, personnel in the air show team, there would be no air show. And in our organisation, we have a small permanent staff supplemented by a large number of part-time staff increasing as we get up to the air show period to about 130 people. But then we have about 800 or 850 volunteers. 60 or 70% of those volunteers have been long-term volunteers. So they are really enthused about aviation or they're enthused about the air show itself and being part of the event, getting together with their friends and, yep. and making a contribution. And I never cease to marvel at their enthusiasm and their commitment some of them will work here at the air show without any form of remuneration other than a free feed and a couple of free beers and a pat on the back yeah. and some accommodation thrown in uh, and a, a t-shirt and a tie yeah. and a few souvenirs um, <laughs> uh, every couple of years and, the, yeah. and they'll, they'll work here for six or seven or sometimes even longer yep. days and even longer and to me they just epitomize the very essence of good citizenship and uh, you know i genuinely um I'm genuinely grateful to them because they are um, uh, they're great enthusiasts. They're just all great Australians, I reckon. Cool. I think the whole point about the air show is, amongst everything else, it's just a celebration of aviation, isn't it? And we often talk about in our show about the, the mindset of the person with aviation that gets it and the person that doesn't get it. And for those of us that do get it, there's no better celebration of aviation. And we look forward to it every two years. Yeah, thank you. I, I agree. I agree with you. I mean, it, it's nice to hear that sort of thing because you know when you when you've committed many many years to the development of this and you're constantly um, confronted by the challenges and the challenges get harder and harder and harder all the time and I could have raved on for another hour or two about what they are now we're you know, increasingly regulated and yeah. people expect more and more of us all the time and it gets harder and harder to balance the budget and all the rest of it. It is nice to know that we do have some sort of effect and one of the best things that you can do is to walk around the air show and look at the faces on the kids. And, and you know, all you've got to do is see their smile or their sense of awe. And, uh, you know, it's all worth it straight away. 
The other thing about it, though, if you pardon me, I might be being a little bit sentimental, is that, Steve, I completely agree with you. We aviation enthusiasts get it. We understand the spiritual nature of aviation. Uh, we understand the language of Jonathan Livingston Seagull. <laughs> we, we, yeah. we understand the miracle of flight, the notion of unseen forces, differential pressure, uh, <laughs> holding a, an aerofoil section in the air and enabling our aircraft to lift. We also, I think, if you think really deeply about it, can look at an aircraft and appreciate that in that machine there is incorporated every branch of science and technology known to man. And in that beautiful thing, and they're elegant, yeah. aircraft are generally, generally speaking elegant, they're generally beautiful, that does amazing things and can entertain the crowd and, and inspire <laughs> them, there is hidden away all of this technology, all of this science and engineering. And I think that's just a fascinating thing that sets aside aviation uh, from almost every other endeavor. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah. Well, that's the best way to sum it up, Ian. Uh, you've been very generous with your time, and uh, we really appreciate you spending some time with us here. What are the dates for the air show coming up at Avalon? March 1st to 6th, uh, 2011, and I hope that uh, uh, you and your listeners will not have been bored by this old aviation enthusiast <laughs> prattling on, and will come out and join us at Avalon next year. You'll we'll sure. all be most welcome. Definitely. We'll be here. Great. Thanks for being with us. Give your business a professional edge with promotional solutions from audio-visual media, jingles, jingles radio, ads, radio ads, television ads, television ads, stunning visual presentations, cards, brochures and catalogues available in print or digital media such as CD or DVD. Audio-visual media, a complete solution to your business promotion. Visit our website at www.audiovisualmedia.com.au or call us on 0407 G'day, I'm Michael. Hi, I'm Rosalind. And we're, we're from, from downwind.com.au, the website for aviation enthusiasts. Come and join a community of passionate aviators who'd love to share about their experiences and the joy of being in the air. On Downwind, you can participate in forum discussions, view great photos and videos, and keep up to date with a weekly newsletter. So come and join the community at downwind.com.au. this and other great shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. TheVoicesInYourHead.com Well, there we are, Grant. What an interesting interview. You know, I actually didn't know that the uh, Avalon Air Show had its roots uh, so far back and actually up at Schofields in New South Wales. I can remember my father taking me to air shows at the RAF base at Laverton back in the 70s, and I actually, uh, before we did this interview, assumed that the Avalon Air Show had come from that, so uh, shows how much I know. Who says you don't learn anything from listening to PCDU? This is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I can remember those air shows at Laverton fondly. You know, I quite often drive past the base uh, at Laverton there in the in the train, which for folks who don't know, Laverton is, is about halfway between Avalon and uh, the Melbourne CBD and uh, of course that base is not open to flight operations these days in fact Grant they're building a housing estate across the runway which you know in one way I think is a travesty in another way I think gee whiz I wish I could buy a house out there (laughs) you'd love to be able to go look I'm living on a runway yeah the control tower is still there yes I think it's heritage listed mate that'll do it somebody ought to tell the graffiti people yeah actually don't tell them because that'll they'll target it even more then (laughs) okay so uh, Avalon 2011 Grant it's in March from the 1st through to the 6th now of course the first 
three days uh, trade days, trade only days, not open to the public. Uh, and for the general public, of course, it's the last two days, which is the fifth and sixth. That's on a weekend conveniently. We hope the weather is kind to us because I remember the last Avalon, uh, well, at least on day, I mean, it poured with rain and most of the aircraft, unfortunately, had to stay on the ground. I tell you what, I really picked my days. I was with the media team and I was there for the uh, weekdays. And uh, I remember as I was leaving on the Friday, as all the crowds were coming in for the uh, Friday evening show, as uh, Ian said, they've been doing a uh, night show for a very long time. And uh, they opened the door to the general public from the afternoon of the Friday onwards to do the night show. And uh, I remember looking at the clouds building and thinking, oh, this isn't looking good. And I heard from the guys on tarmac that uh, it had been very wet that night and was very wet and windy all weekend. And I had other things I had to do. So kind of glad I, I missed that weather. It's ironic really in a way because uh, we, we'd not even thought about doing podcasting at that time and one of the reasons I'd gone to Avalon 2009 was to see the F-111 because I assumed that it would be uh, probably one of the last chances I'd get to see it fly and uh, well, of course, <laughs> uh, you know, in order to ensure that uh, seeing as it didn't fly that day, in order to ensure that I did, we had to start this podcast Grant and if uh, you've, everyone's listened to episode 51, you'll see that my cunning plan came to fruition two years later. There you go mate, see, if you, a bit of dedication, patience and perseverance pays off. Yeah, who says I can't plan anything? <laughs> now we've heard some rumours around about some uh, r- rather fantastic uh, display teams, military display teams. Of course, the big focus of uh, Avalon 2011 is going to be the Royal Australian Air Force. It is their 90th anniversary this year, and uh, so that'll be the major focus. And we believe that there'll be a much greater focus on military uh, aircraft than perhaps we've seen in previous years. Now, uh, as we record this, we're recording this on the on January 27th, so we're not exactly sure about uh, which of those teams are going to come. So uh, we're not going to speculate about that here, but. What we do know, just looking down the uh, the website here at airshow.net.au, of course, the RAF will be very heavily represented. We're talking uh, classic Hornets, plus we've got uh, Super Hornets coming, Hawk 127s, well, basically anything that flies with the RAF. Uh, C-130Hs, C-130Js, PC-9s, C-17s, Wedgetail, BBJs, Challenger 604s. Does, does that lift anything out? Oh, mate, I think you missed one of the C, uh, the old CT-4s. Did you mention that, the, the parrots? Oh. Yeah, so, of course, the Royal Australian Navy will be there, the Quite a selection of helicopters. The Army, of course, with their helicopters. Uh, the Red Beret parachute team, that's always well worth looking at. Uh, of course, the US military always has a quite a large presence at Avalon. We're looking at F-16s, F-22 Raptors, B-2 Spirits. Now, gee whiz, that's worth going just to see on its own. Galaxies, which they send most times, KC-135s, C-17s, B-1s. They had B-1s there at the last one too, and they're just an amazing looking aircraft. Very noisy. Uh, the Royal Air Force will be there. The Royal New Zealand Air Force will be there. The Re- Republic of Singapore is sending a, a couple of F-16s and looks like a, a couple of Super Pumas as well. The Pakistani Air Force will be with us, the French Air Force and the Italian Air Force and there's a, also a huge selection of warbirds. We know our friends at Haas, the Historical Aircraft Re- Restoration Society will be uh, well represented there. Uh, well, Grant, and just looking down that list, we'd uh, certainly encourage our listeners to uh, get over to their website once again, airshow.net.au and uh, just have a look down there at the exhibition and it'll show you the aircraft that are on display. Yeah, well, once again, when you see them, you believe them, but uh, the word is that tomorrow is going to be turning out in force with all their ex-RAAF uh, aircraft, including Spitfire, Mustang, Sabre, Hudson, Canberra, Meteor. They've got lots of aircraft there, including I think they 
can probably bring in a boomerang or two. So it's going to be pretty awesome. Yep, really looking forward to it. Now, of course, we don't have uh, an Oshkosh to uh, cry about every year here in Australia, but as far as air shows go in this part of the world, well, Avalon is, is certainly it, and um, you know it's really built itself up into one of the one of the largest air shows and trade shows uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, you know we're really fortunate uh, here in Victoria that uh, well, Avalon for for us is uh, just about a one hour drive, not even that from uh, where we live. So we're really looking forward to getting there. It depends on who's driving, doesn't it? Yes. Well, if I'm driving, it'll be a one hour drive, and if Grant drives, well, it'll be considerably faster. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it cru- my car just cruises, man. It'll, it'll be significantly weighed down if I'm in it, though. <laughs> and all our equipment. So, yeah, we're going to have to use your vehicle. Yeah. Now, uh, for those of you who are wondering, the plan is uh, for Grant and I to be there on each and every day of the air show. And uh, the plan at this stage is to do, uh, basically, if you've ever listened to uh, Uncontrolled Airspace, and if you haven't, well, you should, uh, when they go to Oshkosh and when they go to Sun and Fun, they do like an air show daily type of thing. So, uh, as we did when, with election time when we had the quick casts, uh, that's what we plan to do. Uh, grab uh, as many interviews as we can with as many significant uh, aviation types and exhibitors uh, as we can during the day. Head back to the hotel room that night, throw an episode together and uh, get it out there. So you can expect potentially five podcasts in five days. Significantly oh. shorter than our last one though, Green. Yeah, I was going to say, they won't be that long. They'll just have snippets of uh, of the highlights of what happened that day with the real thing being put together at the end. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we should be down there with uh, Stephen Pam and uh, and Adam, your brother, who will be doing video and still photography with us as well. So uh, quite the team and we're really looking forward to being on site. And if we're really lucky, folks, we may be able to drag Anthony Simmons, the infrequent flyer down there, and he can give us the view from the bar. <laughs> there will be so many bars on site. Yes, yeah. you will find everyone. Yeah, so uh, we'll be looking for some inter- interesting reviews from Anthony that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm scared already. <laughs> so that's what we'll be doing. Uh, now, of course, also we'll be making uh, snippets of those interviews to uh, put in our segments on the Airplane Geeks and, of course, our Flying Down Under segment on Flight Time Radio. That's at flighttimeradio.com and airplanegeeks.com, two of the other locations you can find the PCDU team. So that just about wraps up episode 52. But as we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, in, as you would have heard through the interview, the uh, the audio quality wasn't the best. And uh, I can tell you that the the standard of audio that you heard was considerably better and uh, much improved on what the original sounds like. Grant and I uh, actually learned a lot of lessons there. And uh, the room wasn't particularly good acoustic-wise, but uh, we've actually invested in some lapel mics uh, since we uh, did that interview because um, our trusty Zoom recorders, uh, which we normally rely on to do such a good job, well, we, didn't, we either didn't have them set properly that day or... Uh, Perhaps they're just not uh, designed to do that sort of uh, that interview in a big cavernous space of a boardroom. So uh, uh, we really wanted to do justice to Ian because, uh, as I said at the top of the show, he did give us uh, far more time than uh, perhaps he had on his hands. Uh, he, he's an extremely busy man. So uh, we wanted to give a big shout out here to uh, Dominic at audiovisualmedia.com.au. We, uh, in the end, uh, after I tried every trick in the book that I've uh, managed to teach myself over the years for audio processing and basically failed to bring this one up, I uh, sent this off to Dominic and uh, he worked his magic on it. it had not been for Dominic at audiovisualmedia.com.au well I can tell you Grant uh, this episode probably wouldn't have happened and we would have been rather embarrassed. Oh very I mean it's embarrassing enough that it took us so long to get it to uh, actually a state that we could get it out to you folks but uh, we worked hard and we finally managed to get everything sorted and the content's awesome so it's got to be played. So uh, a big thanks to Ian Honnery once again for being so generous with his time a big thanks also to his manager of media relations Lorene Deal for squeezing us in there actually uh, I had a great, we had a great chat with Lorene afterwards didn't we Grant? Yeah no that was awesome 
Awesome. Really enjoyed chatting with her. She's got a lot of experience in the media world and uh, it was great to learn things from her. Yeah, we learned a lot about uh, interview techniques that day. And uh, (laughs) I tell you what, uh, I really would would like to have another few more sessions talking about that sort of stuff with Lorraine, but uh, we'll try and pin her down on that some other time. Assuming she ever lets us anywhere near her again. (laughs) So thanks very much for listening, folks. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with episode 53 of Playing Crazy Down Under. But until then, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website, or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. We're going to have a boatload. Well, sorry. What's that boatload? Touchdown, crowd goes wild. Yeah. All right, right to come out the other side. Oh, and now through the miracle of modern electronics, here we are on the other side of the show. Marker, ding. <laughs> Philip. <laughs> that could be so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> My brain has definitely left the building. Um, okay, so we'll just scratch all that and go from the top. Well, there you go, mate. Who says you get you don't learn anything from talk, listening to that? Mm, can't see that there, but I'm sure that'll be in the uh, – I'm sure. Uh, oh. God, did you hear that? We've got to soundproof that room. That's right. We're spreading. We're growing. We are taking over the net one podcast at a time. <laughs> yeah, right. You can cut that. Yeah, right. I was going to say, I hope to be shrinking soon. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. Uh, what the hell else was I going to say, Grant? I can't remember. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. 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 Oh!